Inflation hurts presidents, especially gas prices, and it's not the media's fault. This week on the Science of Politics. For the Niskanen Center, I'm Matt Grossman. Inflation is touching 30-year highs, and President Biden's approval remains low. News stories are focused on the rising prices at the pump, upsetting voters. But don't blame the media for the poor performance of the president's party. It turns out inflation hurting the president is a long-running pattern. And the media has actually been harder on prior Republican presidents. This week, I talked to Laurel Harbridge-Young of Northwestern University about her chapter with John Krosnick and Jeffrey Wooldridge, Presidential Approval and Gas Prices. She finds that increasing gas prices especially hurt presidents. And that pattern does not depend on media coverage. Incessant coverage is not necessary for translating inflation to voters. I also talked to Eric Merkley of the University of Toronto about his American politics research article, Partisan Bias in Economic News Content. He finds that media coverage of inflation, and the economy more generally, is actually more favorable for Democratic presidents than Republicans. The media usually hype short-term negative changes, and it's not just for Biden. Harbert Young explains the long-running relationship between gas prices and presidential approval. This is a project where we're looking at the relationship between gas prices and presidential approval. And so when we look at data from January 1976 through July 2007, we find that even when taking into account other measures of the economy, such as employment and um, kind of inflationary pressures um, in other areas of the economy, that we still find an effect of gas prices on presidential approval. We're also controlling for other factors like rally events that might boost presidential approval and scandals that might decrease presidential approval. And what we find is that an increase in gas prices is correlated with a decline in presidential approval. And more importantly, this relationship is not impacted by the amount of media coverage on gas prices at the time, suggesting it's working through people's own evaluations of what gas prices are doing. In, for instance, in one of the models, we find that a 10 cent increase in gas prices is associated with a 0.60 percentage point decline in presidential approval. The relationship is longstanding and not dependent on partisanship, even with increasing polarization. The benefit of looking at, you know, 30 years or so of data, which we do here and at the monthly level, which gives us, you know, a reasonable amount of power to look for a relationship here, is that, you know, we're not finding a relationship that's just driven by one president or one time period. You know, we're looking to see is this kind of a pattern that's generally um, holding over this 30 year period. Um, But the analysis um, doesn't break things down, you know, by time period. And I think that is a certainly a limitation. You could think that the time that things have changed over time, you know, and I think the, the thing I was thinking most about when you raised this question was, whether the increased polarization among the public and the kind of extreme partisan polarization over presidential approval ratings might be changing this a bit. So people have noticed that beginning with Bush and then kind of accelerating with President Obama and President Trump, um, and now Biden as well, the presidential approval is highly polarized by party. So co-partisans of the president approve at very high levels, kind of regardless of what the president does or what the economy does. Opposing partisans do not approve of the president, regardless of what he does or what the economy does. And then maybe it's independents who are moving the most. Um, And so that certainly, particularly on the opposing partisans, there may be a floor effect of thinking about how far approval could really fall. You know, I was looking at Gallup's data for Biden and, you know, when he first came into office, I think approval among Republicans was 12%. It's now down to six, so it has dropped, but it's also, there wasn't a lot of room for it to fall. 
Likewise, the kind of in-party protection side of it, Democrats, you know, have dropped as well, but not a lot from 98% to 90%. And so it's really the independents who are the biggest movers in the Gallup data. I think they show that independents move from around 61% approval to 37% approval. So that's a much bigger swing. And so when you think about how partisan polarization has played in, you know, it's certainly possible that there's a weaker relationship between gas prices or other measures of the economy and presidential approval in more recent years. It's not something we looked at, but it's certainly a possibility with the data and a limitation of what the current analyses can show. Merkley finds that the media overall is nicer toward Democratic presidents in economic coverage. In that uh, article, I conduct a sentiment analysis of top circulating U.S. print media, uh, so from 1985 to 2013, uh, in the coverage of inflation and unemployment, those two issues specifically. So I find generally that the tone of coverage is more positive under Democratic presidents after controlling for objective measures of economic performance. Uh, And more crucially, and I think that the more important contribution here uh, is that I find uh, the short run, uh, that in the short run, the news media becomes more negative with increases uh, in the unemployment and inflation rates, but again, only under under Republican presidents. So so the big takeaway is there there seems to be some systematic pro-democratic bias, and at least the the news media that I uh, sampled in in this article, uh, and especially in responsiveness in its responsiveness to negative economic information. Uh, and then I have a bunch of supplementary analyses that reviewers pushed me on to look at the ef- effects of this in economic news more broadly, comparing across different media formats, outlet endorsements. And I also look at the volume of content as well, and I find uh, similar, similar results as well. So it holds up fairly nicely. In recent decades, there's been a lot more economic coverage of unemployment, but the news mostly focuses on the most negative conditions. It's certainly true that one of them is a top tier issue and the other one not so much, at least over the period that I study. So uh, un- unemployment uh, gets far, far more coverage uh, and and the unemployment rate generally is is predictive of, the, of a much broader set of economic news that the inflation rate probably isn't. So unemployment is certainly a top tier issue. Inflation covered much less readily. And through this period of study, it was, it was a period of a fairly low uh, consistently low inflation with, with a couple exceptions, uh, but certainly nothing compared to like the 1970s. And so that's, um, you know, just a kind of an artifact of when the data became available and, and, and all that. So, so there are differences there. There are also differences in negativity. So there's a lot of, a lot of scholarly research on media, on negative media bias, the, the tendency for journalists to accentuate the negative across the board. A lot of, a lot of really good systematic evidence of this. I don't look at this directly for the reason that, uh, so the Lexicoder Sentiment Dictionary, the, the, the tool I use to evaluate the tone of, of news articles, it doesn't have a true neutral point. So it's a, it's a relative measure of relative positivity and negativity. There's some work by Stuart Soroka in the Journal of Politics back in 2012, looking at, uh, well, the media is only really responsive to negative changes in economic conditions. So increases in the unemployment rate, for instance, and his focus was on the unemployment rate for that. But he's all he's also found by matching Lexicoder, uh, Lexicoder scores to human coders uh, to identify where the neutral point is in that scale. He's able to show that negative news is, is twice as likely to be covered as positive news on the whole in the in the US context, maybe it's it might be softer uh, in other countries, but there's definitely a negative news effect. And so my interest here was, okay, 
we know that there's this focus on negativity. Does it matter more under Republicans than Democrats? And that was kind of the starting off point for, for my research. Merkley finds that on inflation and unemployment, Democrats got a lot more positive coverage and it's less responsive to real economic data. The differences are sizable. I would say they're probably not overwhelmingly so, but subjective interpretations of how of how big the effects are, that's going to vary person to person. So that, that's my uh, interpretation of it. So effectively, the, the, the overall effect of having a Democratic president on the tone ranges between 0.6 and 0.7 standard deviations in for unemployment and inflation coverage. So I take that as, as, as a reasonably large effect, not a huge one, but but meaningful. In terms of responsiveness, I find that something like a half point increase in the unemployment rate in the short run would lead to about a standard deviation decrease in tone under Republican administrations. And then there's no significant effect for Democrats. So that's 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 sizable. It's it would be relatively comparable to the effect of having a recession, but and this is a, this is a key key point to to understand about the design that is only in the short run, and and so that that effect vanishes after that time point. And so that that's how the model is designed. So this this focus on responsiveness it's not it's not a long lasting effect. It it only exists at that for that quarter, and then and then. For the next change in the unemployment rate, the media does something different. So that's an, that's an important thing to keep in mind. Both papers use historical data, so let's dig into each project. Harvard Young looks over a long time period, providing a new analysis of what happened to George W. Bush. I certainly don't think that the conventional narrative of a boost following 9-11 followed by kind of a regression to the mean combined with people's unhappiness with Katrina, with the Iraq war, so forth, um, all kind of contributing to a decline. But I also think that, as we point out in the figure, if you just look at the simple bivariate relationship, there's also a very strong relationship in that figure between his um, approval rating and gas prices. And so I think the benefit of the broader analysis, which moves beyond one president and kind of looks over a 30-year period, is to say, you know, is there anything to the kind of story that gas prices might have been contributing to Bush's approval? And I think, you know, obviously our results don't separate by president, but the, I think they're suggestive that they were part of the story. They weren't all of the story. In the model, we control for both the the kind of boost that President Bush would have gotten from 9-11. So we have a variable that is an indicator for um, 9-11 that captures September, October, and November of 2001. We have presidential approval in the prior month, which shows a negative effect, which essentially kind of regression to the mean. So presidents who get a boost in approval then likely decline. Presidents who have a low approval for kind of a scandal or something likely kind of move back up. You know, and we have measures of uh, the Iraq war and other things that are capturing these other conventional measures. And so our results are saying that even accounting for these other factors, we're still finding an effective gas prices. So I think the answer is kind of, it's a bit of both. Certainly those things matter and our results suggest they do. Um, in terms of where there are significant effects of those control variables, but that on balance, at least across presidencies, gas prices also matter. She's also not sure if Biden is being hurt by gas prices alone. I think the place where I would say maybe there's a little bit of caution in applying what we found is that right now, at least from my understanding, it's very hard to separate the broader inflationary trends from gas prices. They've been moving together uh, from all the evidence that I've been able to see. And so in our paper, we tried to argue that there was a kind of 
unique or additional effect from gas prices overall. And moreover, that this was kind of happening through people's kind of own recognition of gas prices, not necessarily through media coverage, which would suggest this more kind of sociotropic countrywide well-being as opposed to pocketbook uh, well-being. And I think right now the challenge is that these are both moving together and a lot of the same factors that may be driving inflation at a macroeconomic level are also the same factors that are driving the higher gas prices. And so it's a lot easier to separate these things if you have kind of general inflation is not moving up that much, but gas prices are rising because of, you know, OPEC decisions or other things like that. I think, you know, the fact that they're a visible indicator to people, I would say probably means they're still part of the story of Biden's decline in approval. She finds that the media does track real gas price change, but that isn't necessary. Certainly, it's reasonable to think that media coverage of inflation has been increasing and rightly so in terms of covering what's happening on the ground. You know, I think they're certainly covering the broader inflation part, this, you know, bigger story of supply chain issues that's been, you know, facing us for several months now. And these are certainly telling voters more about how the economy is doing as a whole. So again, think pointing to these kind of sociotropic measures. But again, you know, if we think about what our results were, that gas prices mattered and they mattered even without uh, kind of the amount of uh, media coverage, suggesting it was kind of people's own recognition of what gas prices were, is that even if the media weren't talking a lot about inflation right now, our evidence would suggest that people would still be recognizing that gas prices are rising and may still be holding the president accountable for that. So, you know, it's it's unlikely that the media is solely to blame for why Biden's approval is dropping as inflation and gas prices are rising. The media isn't always the necessary intermediary. Based on my reading of the past literature, that in general, when people have thought about the role of the media in kind of helping people figure out how to use economic indicators in approval of the president, is the media is doing one or both of two things. One is they're providing information, um, letting people know, you know, whether an indicator has gone up or down, if it's in a bad place or not. Um, And the other is just that by talking about it, they might be priming people to use that indicator um, in their evaluations of the president. And in the case of gas prices, um, people don't really need the media to tell them what the change in gas prices is. So there's past work that we cite in the paper by Stephen Salabahar and colleagues that found that people are significantly more accurate in their perceptions of gas prices than they are of the unemployment rate. And this accuracy is also related to how often you drive a car, which makes a lot of sense that if you drive a lot and you're filling your tank up a lot, you're a lot more attuned to what the gas price is than if you drive more sporadically. And so I think because they're visible, it really becomes just a question of, is the media providing this priming effect? And in our findings, you know, there was there was not a significant relationship of media coverage, you know, when we interacted with those gas prices. And so it suggested that that wasn't happening. You know, could that maybe be different at a different point in time if the media talks about it differently? Certainly. But just kind of over the time period that we were looking at, and even with kind of a lot of different ways of measuring the kind of extent of media coverage, we couldn't find a significant relationship there in terms of that interactive effect between gas prices and media coverage. That's likely because gas prices are the most visible form of inflation. The the main reason I think that gas prices don't need media coverage is because they're visible to people, that people 
get gas regularly. You know, you see it as you drive by the gas station, what they're advertising is the price. You fill up regularly, you know, you know, okay, last time I filled up my tank, it cost $40. Now it cost $45. And so it's a, it's a repetitive thing that people do. And it's where it's the one item they're buying. And so, you know, I don't know any evidence on this, but you could certainly imagine that people right, right now might see that their grocery bill has gone up, but they don't necessarily know if the price of milk versus eggs versus bread versus meat, you know, where those things are moving because there's a lot in their cart and they're, you know, some people may be tracking things specifically, but a lot of people may not. And so gas prices, it's usually the only thing that you're buying when you're stopping at the gas station. So it's visible, it's repetitive in terms of doing it. And it's the kind of, it's a single item ticket that you're buying at once. Merkley agrees that the media may not be as important on some parts of inflation. There is this broader debate about uh, to what degree does the news media actually influence people's perceptions of the economy. That is because people do have some sort of real world ability to evaluate these changes. And, and certain things like gas prices are, are very obtrusive. They, they affect people in their daily lives. And so media framing, uh, media agenda setting, all that just may, may not be as important on some dimensions of the economy th- than others. So I, I, th- I think it's a very, very interesting question. Um, so there's still, still, and it's very hard to, to causally identify uh, um, the effect of the media on economic perceptions, um, considering the, me- the there is an endogeneity argument um, that others have made. And, and I think there's you know compelling theoretical reasons to expect it, that, that the media kind of follows the public to, to some degree as well. Um, so, I, so I think it's, it's super interesting. There might be variation uh, in that obtrusiveness, people's ability to, to learn about the economy in, their, in the real life. Uh, and so the, the ability of the media to, to frame the issue might be considerably less on those issues. And gas prices may well be one of those. He compares Republicans and Democrats at similar levels of economic performance. That's the counterfactual that we have to engage in when we when we think about media bias is if this was a Republican president, and I, and I say like as an, like a normal order Republican president, given the time period of my analysis, what what would tone be uh, with these conditions? Uh, and my my analysis suggests that it would be more negative. Um, I, I think you know since the rise of Trump, which happened all after the, the time period I studied, I wonder if there's there's some differences for other reasons like. Um, how, how quickly does the media get knocked off of inflation stories when Trump does something outrageous and they move on to something else? So I, I wonder how much how much this extends into the new era. Uh, but nonetheless, that's the counterfactual. Um, so, for, so for me, it's, it's not surprising that it, such an a, a increase in inflation is highly, highly novel. It's highly, highly negative. And, and it just it, it, it taps into these pathologies in, in media, in, in journalist reporting, that it's not surprising that there's a media storm uh, that, that comes out of this to some degree, taps into all those dimensions. And so we have, we have to think about the counterfactual. Ultimately, partisans are going to always think that the media is being mean to their side um, at some level. Um, but we really do have to think through the counterfactual. And, it's, it's, and that's why you can't, you can't look at one event and say, well, that's, that's bias. You have to look over time or, or find other some, some creative research design that allows you to credibly examine that. You won't be able to examine the counterfactual directly, but to sort of get that in that direction. Bias was concentrated in newspapers endorsing Democrats. So I, so I look at how the bias varies based, based on newspaper endorsements. 
I find that bias, overall bias is stronger among Democratic endorsing papers. Um, but I think, a, you know, an interesting thing is we, we've seen newspaper endorsements turn so dramatically against the Republican Party now in the Trump era. It seems we lose all leverage uh, over this sort of question um, using endorsements. So just an interesting thing to note for future research. Democrats might do better overall on the economy, but this analysis is not picking that up. The changes that I see are not as are not as vulnerable. Those sorts of patterns are not as vulnerable to persistent differences in the levels um, because they operate independently, is often the case. Um, so, so that element of the design is less susceptible to those issues, which is why I, I think that is the main contribution of this paper, um, because, you know, I, I, I couldn't control for everything. Um, and so there might, um, you know, there, there is certainly a pattern that economies are better under democratic presidents. So maybe it's not fully accounted for, but I don't think for the short run analyses, I don't think I'm as the design is as vulnerable to that sort of problem. He finds that print media does predict public views, and broadcast news is less responsive to economic conditions. I focus on print media, um, and print print also includes Newswire, uh, so the AP APs in my sample. I see them as, as as agenda setters for the broader media environment, and therefore deserving of attention. And there's some and there's some evidence. So in in the many many supplementary analyses that are attached to this article, um, I, I find that. Um, print and AP is, is much more strongly predictive of people's economic perceptions um, than broadcast media. Um, so there's there's so there's some evidence that it's that it's it's these outlets that, that should um, that are the most important for the for for what I'm interested in that is influencing economic perceptions. You know, as other points that it really didn't seem like broadcast news was particularly responsive to the unemployment unemployment conditions. Now there's there's some method there's some methodological questions here because Lexicoder does does well over uh, large amounts of text where you can average across a whole article for positive and negative words. Broadcast transcripts are, are shorter, a lot shorter. Uh, so it might, might, there's a lot more noise in that measure. Um, so I don't use broad, I don't use broadcast for that reason in the main text, but I do look at it in the supplement and find that they are broadcast news is more positive towards Democrats controlling for all the things that control for. I don't find any responsiveness bias, but that's because I don't find any responsiveness at all um, to the short run to short run changes in the economy. The media focuses on the real levels of inflation, but also reacts to big negative changes. So it's important to, to, to separate out the short run and the long run here. Um, so there, I find both effects uh, in my paper. That is, there's short run asymmetric responsiveness, but there's also kind of an overall bias in the press towards uh, Democratic presidents. So, so there's both of those components. And similarly, in terms of how the media responds to the economy, there's also short run and long run components. Um, so there's short run changes at a particular time point to an immediate change in inflation and unemployment. And the best evidence suggests that they really only focus on um, on, on the short run negative. But in the long run, um, at least for inflation in, in my paper, it, it seems like the media is responsive to the level of inflation as well. And so Stuart Soroka doesn't find that to be the case for unemployment, but for inflation, there does seem to be a long run effect of inflation in the models that I estimate. So. So that means that there, that there is going to be some responsiveness of the economy to the overall level of inflation. So if, if inflation does improve over the long run, tone should probably match that eventually. It just it's not going to be responsive to that short run improvement, but it'll it'll respond over time. 
So yeah, I do. I do think if this is a story about inflation and it is a story about gas prices, um, you, you could see some rebounding. But again, uh, our ability to know what exactly it is behind decreases in Biden's approval is pretty limited at this stage. Both projects are returning to long-standing political science questions. Harvard Young says that other work points to gas price effects being about real pocketbook concerns. The recent piece in American politics research that you referenced uh, by Kim and Yang, so they find that constituencies with longer average driving times to work are more likely to hold the president accountable for gas prices and suggest that this is further evidence of people using pocketbook voting rather than this kind of sociotropic or broader economic evaluation. And I think this piece actually does provide a nice linkage between the chapter that we've just been discussing, uh, which showed an overall relationship between gas prices and presidential approval. And because of the lack of significance of the media finding also pointed to pocketbook considerations and some of the more recent work. And so the, the Kim and Yang piece takes advantage of the fact that this overall relationship between gas prices and presidential approval isn't fixed across different groups within the country. So suggesting that people with longer commute times are going to be more sensitive to this. And so in the recent work, uh, which is a forthcoming paper in LSQ, Legislative Studies Quarterly, with Sarah Anderson, Daniel Butler, and August Markarian, is we look at the factors that affect state legislators' support for the gas tax. And again, here we find that legislators whose constituencies have longer driving commute times are more likely to oppose an increase to the gas tax, more likely to favor a lower gas tax, by contrast, those who have longer commutes on public transit as opposed to driving are more supportive. And so we kind of frame this paper in terms of thinking about the implications for um, legislators' willingness to support investment in public transit and kind of the, the double dividends for um, carbon emissions. So support for a higher gas tax can reduce driving. If more people take public transit, it reduces driving. And so when I kind of think about these two different pieces of work, You know, obviously an important distinction is that gas tax policy is clearly in the domain of legislators. So this is something that's set at the federal level for the federal tax, the state level for the state gas tax. And it has important implications for decarbonization policy, for funding of transportation projects and others, um, but that the cost can be concentrated among some constituents. And the distinction there then, so gas taxes are in the control of legislators, gas prices overall are much less directly tied to the policy decisions of legislators or the president. But I think the Kim and Yang piece highlights that, again, the impact of higher gas taxes isn't felt the same across the country. And so when we think about kind of who might be most responsive to these increases, again, this isn't in the chapter that we're talking about here with Krosnick and Wildridge, but I think the Kim and Yang piece kind of is a nice extension of that, which says that it, the, the impact of gas prices on presidential approval may also matter more where people are having to drive more uh, to work. This is a return to previous views of how the economy matters in politics. People first started kind of thinking about the factors that went into presidential approval. There was a bit of an assumption that it would be kind of pocketbook considerations, that it would be, you know, how individuals were doing economically. And what the research kind of consistently showed in that kind of, you know, 1970s, 1980s or so, was that it actually wasn't pocketbook considerations. It was this broader kind of sociotropic set of views or kind of the well-being of the country as a whole. And I think part of that was that people don't necessarily hold the president accountable for how they're doing. You know, I think that the kind of American ethos of kind of individualism and stuff, you know, does suggest that people people recognize that 
or many people view that the government is not necessarily responsible for their own economic well-being, that there's a lot of kind of personal choice there, you know, random chance, everything else, but that it's not just up to the government. And so it was more about, you know, if the economy as a whole is doing well, the president would be rewarded. If the economy as a whole is doing poorly, the president would be penalized. And so, you know, I think the evidence on inflation and unemployment um, certainly trended in that direction. Um, People also tended to need media coverage to kind of know what those national numbers were. You know, you might know that there that some people were laid off at a plant in your town, but you don't necessarily know if that's indicative of a broader trend across the country without kind of some greater attention from the media and kind of information there about what the trends are. You know, I think in the current environment, inflation has become pretty salient to people given how quickly it's risen. But I think people probably still need kind of a, a sense of what it's doing across the country and not just like, oh, like things seem more expensive here. But, you know, as we said in the in the paper or the chapter, given the lack of relationship with media attention for gas prices, it was suggestive that this was working through more of a pocketbook relationship. You know, it doesn't rule out that people were extrapolating from what they saw as gas prices themselves to how this was affecting the country as a whole, but it it moves things maybe in the, you know, at least keeping pocketbook on the table, whereas a lot of previous analyses kind of took pocketbook off the table. I and mean, then certainly the Kim and Yang piece as well suggests that there is an element here that certainly pocketbook that if you're thinking nationally about it, it shouldn't matter whether you personally drive a lot and have to fill up your tank of gas a lot or not. Um, and so that certainly suggests that there's a pocketbook element going on. Inflation hurts presidents, even accounting for other good economic news. In our model, and I think any good model of presidential approval, you're including Kind of multiple indicators. So, you know, unemployment has been looking better and better over the course of the Biden administration. So that that is accounted for in the type of model that we have. And then when we think about kind of the inflationary side, I mean, you're right, economists may have differing views on how problematic it is for the country that um, inflation is going up. But I think from a political perspective, inflation is a challenging thing for a president because the costs that people are facing are going up much higher than their wages are going up. And so what they're seeing is that their money isn't going as far. And then, you know, obviously the media coverage of it and everything else in terms of kind of hyping this as a problem is certainly going to then potentially hurt uh, presidential approval. But what the real economic consequences of that are and what it means for the health of the economy is a bigger story for economists to kind of tell to media organizations. But I think that again goes to kind of why for these kind of broader measures of inflation and unemployment, the media does play a really important role because people's context and kind of understanding of what a particular number means is explained to them by the media. And so I I do think you're probably right if the media talked about inflation differently, it might have a slightly different effect. But again, just given what the the raw findings of the paper are um, and what past work as well, you know, they're not looking at content analysis of what media coverage is saying. Um, You know, the historical record shows that when inflation goes up, presidential approval goes down. So the, the, the content of media coverage may not be that important. And Merkley responds to the old issue of media bias. He says his work might be indicative of broader media bias in favor of Democrats. I can't think of a reason, at least at the moment, that the patterns observed here would not be indicative of the broader media environment. I don't think there's anything about unemployment and inflation together that 
would mean that, okay, well, we observe pro-democratic bias here, but it wouldn't exist on other issues. So I can't, maybe there's a reason out out there for that. Uh, It could be about that economic conditions are generally more positive for Democrats. So it could, could be that, but, but generally speaking, I think, I think the findings will, will extend, but, but it's hard to say. I do, I do replicate this, this work with a larger, uh, a tone measure based on 2 million news articles about the the economy uh, as a whole. Um, So not just about unemployment or not not just about inflation. So a completely different set of news articles with a much larger set of of newspapers. Uh, And I find the exact same thing. Um, So that makes, so that makes me a bit, uh, at least confident that it extends to coverage of the economy more broadly, but there's lots of other issues out there. And and I think the reason why I focused on these issues is because they are performance issues where there are um, observable metrics of performance that people generally agree, quibbles about inflation aside, generally agree what's a positive outcome, what's a negative outcome. There are all sorts of issues that are directional in nature and this sort of design, so directional meaning um, it's, it, there's, there's an ideological valence to the issue, say like abortion or, or gun rights. And this sort of design would be completely unable because there's no, it would be unable to, to tease out media bias. But there's much more research to be done on media bias. I think there's, there's, there's just a lot of unanswered questions about how much influence does the media have on, on people's perceptions of the economy and, and how that varies um, over time and, and across different dimensions of, of the media. And, and it could be that the story is, is very, very complex. Uh, and, and, and I tend to tend to agree with it. And in, th- in this this research, ultimately, you know, it has its limitations. Presidents are systematically different in, in performance and you can't control for everything uh, in any given model. And so, so there's and so there's lots of unanswered questions still about my design. And there's lots of other academic articles on media bias that find different effects. Um, a lot find null effects. So this is very much still an, an open question about, uh, you know, to what degree the media is biased uh, against Republicans, how it varies across issues, how it may vary over time. You know, I could, I could, th- there might be a case for increasing bias against Republicans, but not because of any sort of journalist bias, but because of education polarization in the United States, making the base of news consumers systematically more democratic in their orientation. And so if if journalists and, and editors are responsive to consumer preferences, they might um, move to the left accordingly. So there's so there's lots of lots of unanswered questions about this field of research, and I don't think this my my article here is by any means any stretch of the imagination kind of an open and shut. This is the this is the reality, and there's lots of other the, you know there's so many other biases in the media that are probably much more substantively important uh, th- that we have a, a very commercialized media system means that we have content that is kind of systematically skewed towards novelty and conflict and sensationalism. And all this stuff almost certainly dwarfs the effect of any sort of liberal media bias, uh, if it exists. And and there are other, uh, just to, to plug another article, I have this work with um, Alan Jacobs, uh, Tim Hicks, and Scott Matthews, uh, looking at class bias in, in American news media. And uh, we find that um, because the news media is responsive to these economic indicators like the unemployment rates and GDP, but these indicators are no longer uh, representative of economic gains um, for everyone, uh, but more now targeted towards the rich, that there is a class bias in, in the news media that emerges unintentionally from that sort of process. There's a lot more to learn. 
The Science of Politics is available bi-weekly from the Niskanen Center and part of the Democracy Group Network. I'm your host, Matt Grossman. If you like this discussion, you should check out our previous episodes. How to Change Americans' Views of Inequality, Will a Good Economy Save Trump, Why Rising Inequality Doesn't Stimulate Political Action, How the Media Economy Drives Local News, and How the News Media and Social Media Shape American Voters. Thanks to Laurel Harbert Young and Eric Merkley for joining me. Please check out Presidential Approval and Gas Prices and Partisan Bias and Economic News Content, and then listen in next time. <music>